Hey there, if you would like ad-free and early versions of these episodes, as well as bonus episodes, movie club episodes, and lots more, head on over to patreon.com slash Craig and Friends. Make believe is not pretend, we might be ill, but we're on the mend. It never starts, it never ends, welcome to Craig and Friends, welcome to Craig and Friends, welcome to... There you go. Perfect. And Eric, if you can just give me a couple. And this is me talking. Perfect. What lovely sonorous voices that are joining me. (laughs) Joshua David McKenney and Eric Motika, co-creators and business runners of the Pigeon Doll Empire. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for having us. Oh, thanks for coming. Yeah, it's exciting. I'm so happy we ran into each other the other night. uh, Me too. That was such a great show. We all bumped into each other at the Jake Wesley Rogers show, which was at the Troubadour, which was amazing for so many reasons. Like we were talking about just before we started rolling, seeing people again, it, yeah. it, it's a whole new thing. It's, a, it's, it's hard to uh, get rolling again as far as <laughs> like, how do you say hello to people? What do you talk about? What are social graces anymore? Like, you know. Right. And, and, and like, I'm a big hugger. So, and I gave you a hug too. But as I was going to give you a hug, I was like, oh, wait, does it, does it, I, I have this thought constantly. Oh, wait, do they want to hug? Is it okay for me to hug? Like, what? Yeah. It, it just, all that stuff. Same, same. Right? So, you know, it's, I have, I'm, I just kind of have to apologize to people immediately when I see them. I'm like, I'm sorry, I just don't even know how to do this anymore. So, whatever I do, just know that I care. You know, and it's funny though, because I think we all think, oh, well, we're the only ones feeling like that. So totally, totally. I, I think the more we all talk about it, the better. No, so, that's a great point. Well, I, I've always had social anxiety, so I, I, I appreciate this new world. <laughs> <laughs> now, did you, uh, did you find that when you were kind of keeping just to yourselves, did you enjoy that? Well, Eric and I already work together and live together yeah. and work out of the same spot. So uh, it wasn't that big of a difference. It was very much like business as normal. We just didn't see people anymore. And uh, we were living uh, sort of like right at the foot of the Hollywood Hills at the time. So we could go on like walks by ourselves and we could still get out. And oh, that's good. I would yeah. say, yeah, we, we moved to LA like about a year before the pandemic hit. And yeah. uh, we were, we were glad that we decided to do it then. It was, it was nice to be able to like get out of the house and not yeah. feel so clusters as, as we would have when we were in Brooklyn. Right. And how long were you in Brooklyn for? Eric and I both had lived in New York for about 20 years before we moved here. So we lived in different places in Brooklyn. You move kind of all over the place when you live in New York. But, oh, right. That's you know, right. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. Um, we were at our, our department. Our last apartment was in Bushwick specifically. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we were there for about seven years. Okay. And how long have you two been together? Uh, 13 years. When did you meet and how did you meet? Eric and I met at a bar in the East Village called The Phoenix on Dollar Beer Night. It was a Wednesday. And uh, yeah, I was there with a friend celebrating his first um, day. He just started a new job and Eric was there. He was uh, doing a summer associates program. He was still in law school. He was a lawyer or studying to be a lawyer at the time. And he, I, I, I call myself a recovering lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> There's so, groups for that, right? So that's the good thing. Yeah. <laughs> there are. yeah. And, uh, and yeah, so he was, he was there for the summer and we met that summer. And so, uh, yeah, we dated that summer and then he kind of moved to back to, Boston where he was going to school and then um we sort of dated that year and then um then we moved in together when he came to the city. That's a nice uh setup too because you're not that far away when you're in Boston. I'm originally from the Boston area. So it also gives the specialness too when you're going on the trip. Totally. Yeah, it was nice. We got to like visit each other every other weekend and 
my best friend who I was living with at the time was also dating somebody who lived in Boston. Oh, And so she and I would sort of switch back and forth going to Boston. And <laughs> um, her now husband's name is Derek. So we had boyfriends in Boston named Derek and Eric, and we would take turns visiting them every weekend. Was, that's, yeah. that's very cute. Mm-hmm. Now, when you mentioned the social anxiety thing, so who was the first one to talk to whom or were you just talking already and then realized there was something there? Eric and I are both uh, very tall people. This is very true. Yeah. I'm very short comparatively. Yeah. So when, when I'm, you're, I'm, I'm on an Apple box now, when, for you're the as, video. when you're in a crowded bar and you're as tall as Eric and I are, you see the other tall people very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> so I saw Eric from across the room and, um, yeah, I just thought he was just so beautiful and, sure. and charming. And, um, I wanted to talk to him and I ended up talking to your friend first because he seemed a little more approachable than you did. And, but eventually I, I got to, to talking to Eric, but yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm much more the aggressive one when it comes to, uh, meeting new people and that sort of stuff. So. Sure. Sure. And again, that's another thing that we're talking about. That's, that, that's, uh, weird now. Yes. But, yes. Uh, even when you're not aggressive or you have like a panic moment at, uh, at a public place that you're used to or something back to the, the, uh, good old days. Yeah. So <laughs> you, Eric, were looking at a future of being a lawyer. What changed? What, uh, pushed you away from that? Um, yeah, so I had, I had, um, I'd done a year at a human rights nonprofit and, um, subsequent to that took a job that I had at a, at a big corporate law firm in Manhattan, um, mostly for financial reasons, thinking that I would get out sooner than I did. Um, yeah. I won't, I won't get too deeply into it, but it was not for me on sure. a number of different levels. Yeah. Um, although I did end up it, it ended up being diffi- more difficult to break away than I, than I thought it would be. Really? Um, yeah, just in, in terms of where we were then, um, financially and career wise. Oh, sure. Um, well, you know, that's the other thing. Like you get used to whatever level is coming in, right? A high stress job like that. There's money, but then there's other things attendant to it and you get sort of tied into wherever you're at. Right. Um, yeah. And you know, path dependency, um, inertia, um all the fun stuff right (laughs) um but it was it was never what i wanted to do and eventually um eventually i did get out of it and we started working together so often people say you know don't work with your partner or sometimes people are just afraid to they won't even entertain the idea how did that come about so when eric and i first started dating i was i had never thought about making dolls or done anything doll related at all i was working as a uh a fashion and beauty illustrator for editorial and kids books and And a little lady named mariah carey and mariah (laughs) yes i did a lot of work for mariah um which was also kind of happening when eric and i were first dating so uh eric would eric was there sort of in i i was obsessed with this one doll artist who's um who's a russian-born canadian doll artist named marina bichkova Mm -hmm. and i love i just i was obsessed with her work and i'd never she does these really high-end porcelain dolls that are incredibly labor-intensive and really expensive and just really kind of melancholy and uh they look like fairy tale characters and i just it never occurred to me that a doll could be so uh exquisite and not at all targeted towards children and i i I just got it in my head i was like i I need to i want to make dolls too i want to make dolls that make me feel like that and so I started taking like ceramic classes and learning about like mold making and porcelain and the sort of most old fashioned style of doll making there is. Sure. Uh, not, not, I couldn't find any classes on doll making, but just the materials that you would use to make a doll. And so Eric was there for, for all of that. And, uh, also when we were first dating, 
on one of the trips up on the Feng Hua bus to visit. Oh, the classic Feng Hua. Feng Hua bus yeah, to visit yeah. Eric. I, would, I, I doodle a lot when I'm traveling and mm -hmm. stuff. And you have to also yeah. when you're on the Feng Hua because you're like, don't look around. Yeah, don't, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's focus on this. <laughs> and I, um, I drew this picture of a girl with a beret with a bird wing on her head. And I wrote pigeon, but spelled like the bird uh, on it. And I was like, oh, pigeon, that would be kind of a cute name for a girl. And yeah. I, when I went to Eric, I showed him the drawing. And it was actually on his fridge for a long time. And we talked about like what a girl named pigeon would be like. And it, it was before I was doing anything with dolls. So I wasn't thinking that this is a doll character or a doll brand sure. or anything. It was just like, what would a girl named pigeon be like? And but uh, you had started to sculpt at that point. I had started sculpting. Yeah, I was doing, I did like a little chess set, um, a little Swan Lake themed chess set. And I was learning to make like silicone molds and that sort of stuff too. Was, mm -hmm. uh, my goal was always to sort of get towards something. I don't know if I was even saying the word doll, but it's just whatever Marina's work was, something that made me feel like that, you know? Sure. Now, was Marina's work the first thing that made you feel like that? And I, I remember reading in an interview about how your work helps you to express your feelings of femininity mm -hmm. or your femininity, however you yeah, would yeah. like to say it. Was Marina's work the first thing that sort of made you aware of that or spoke to you in that way? No, I mean, as, as far as like depicting women in my art, that's always been... all. Ever since I was young, like the, I've drawn girls. I don't remember not drawing girls. Sure. So I grew up in a pretty conservative home. And uh, when I was very young, I was very interested in all things feminine and ponytails and long hair and ballerinas and tutus. And my mom kept a very detailed baby book of oh. my first five years. And she talks about this stuff a lot very openly in the baby book. But um, as, a, as a sort of She's struggling with it too because she's a conservative woman and she understands that I'm sort of gender nonconforming and she doesn't know what to do with it. Sure. Um, and so, like, I'm not allowed to play with dolls. I'm not allowed to dress up in women, girls' clothes when I play dress up with my friends. Like, all these sort of things are like very, uh, very off limits, but I am allowed to draw. And so, sort of, all of my need to express femininity, the only way I could do it was to channel it into drawing. Sure. And this is how I view it now. I wasn't thinking yeah. this way at the well, time. Well, of course, yeah. but now, yeah. But when I look back on it, I was like, it, I had all, I just, I just loved femininity and I felt at home in femininity and I felt, um, that's where I was comfortable. And the only place I could really escape to it is, is my art. And so that just sort of became the way I expressed that part of my gender. It's probably only in the past, like even five years that I even know how to talk about it that way because People always ask me, like, why do you only draw girls? I was like, I don't know. I just, this is what I draw. Like, I just, this is what I do. Um, so really the dolls became sort of a, a, a way to sort of manifest that in 2D. Yeah. And um, I get to wear more hats as a doll maker. So I get to be a sculptor. I get to be an engineer. I get to be a hairstylist. I get to be a makeup artist. I get to be a photographer. I get to be a fashion designer. I get to, you know, I get to be a puppeteer and really make um, this sort of three-dimensional feminine expression, which to me, feels like the ultimate way that I can express art. Sure. And also, quite a sensation on TikTok. Yeah. <laughs> which has inspired a lot of other people to create looks for themselves based mm -hmm. on the dolls and I think probably to make art themselves. Yeah. I mean, it, she's um, it, it, the whole sort of social media aspect of Pigeon Doll has been um, the biggest sort of surprise, but also the biggest... Uh, uh, I don't know if compliment's the right word, but the 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 most impactful and me moving thing that has ever happened to me as an artist. Wow. Um, the the TikTok thing happened in the past year, uh, but before that, she had a pretty devoted um, Instagram following, and that's kind of when like the pigeon fan art became a thing, and uh, people started very very early within the first year of me making dolls and posting photos of them, and um, people were dressing up as them, putting their make doing the makeup sure. like the doll, and yeah. I, was, I was able to sort of like. 
see what about my work was becoming distinctive to other people. Like I like to do a lot of freckles on her at the time. And so people would paint on freckles to look like my dolls. And I was like, okay, I guess freckles are sort of a, a trademark of hers or a heart on her cheek or a particular style, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, because the thing about Pigeon is she's, she originally started as sort of like, this is a doll character in the way that like Raggedy Ann or Barbie or whatever sure. are kind of characters. But I also really like the idea that she would be really like elusive and fluid and mm-hmm. not defined by any particular era or her age or her race. Or she would just be the sort of like sculpt of a doll and sort of this one take on femininity. And sort of that's what she became. So I, I liked that different kinds of people um, were seeing themselves in her and then yeah. putting that on. And that, that spoke to me a lot. And when, even before Pigeon was really like earning money for me, I could tell that there was just something something there because of the way people were reacting to her yeah. and to the work in that way. So, and how long was it before you, or rather between when you started uh, doing Pigeon and when you realized I could actually make this my business, my full-time Yeah. Um, so I was, pro- so the first like five years of Pigeon are very, were very much sort of like developmental um me learning all the skills that I needed to know as a doll maker to uh, make her look the way I wanted to. So learning about making molds, learning about like sanding, sculpting, working in 3D, how to have clothes made, how to design for dolls, how to make wigs for dolls, sure, how to photograph them in the right way. To figure all that out, was it just you learning by just... I'm very self-taught. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It's, uh, I mean, there's a a lot of... um, like YouTube videos and on, there's an online community of, of doll makers at different levels or doll customizers that will take like an existing doll mm-hmm. and customize it to look how they want. And so you can watch um, those sorts of videos and you sort of learn and pick up little things and apply them to what you do. But a, a lot of it is really just kind of like, like, okay, I bought some doll hair, I bought some glue <laughs> and you just kind of play around until you've figured out like your way of doing it. Sure. Um, so yeah, so the first five years, you know, but a lot of it was just figuring out how to uh, make the sculpt engineering wise look and have the scale that I wanted. I pigeon started off as like this really big doll that was mm-hmm. porcelain, and then I shrunk her down and I made her big. And 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 how she looked in photographs was really sort of the the main objective. Like it was really important to me that she look a certain way in photos because that's how most people were experiencing the doll. Sure. If the doll is like too big, it's hard to travel with her. And if she's too small, it doesn't, there's all the, like the detail in the face isn't quite there and still sure. the same impact. So finding that perfect balance yeah. um, of, of scale was a big thing. But uh, it, it really was Eric, when Eric and I started working together, like I, I just, I come up with my fifth generation of pigeon doll and she, it's the same sculpt that I use now. And she just really looked, she, the way I was drawing her and the way that she looked in photos really matched up for the first time. And, um, Eric had been talking about quitting for years and years and years, but it really felt like <laughs> that's how it happens. Yeah. You're just like, I mean, it wasn't that many years. Yeah. There, there were several angsty years yeah. um, where it was like, can I do this? Are we ready to do this? Yeah. Is, is, can this thing actually sustain us? Sure. Um, yeah. And I had, you know, paid off some loans and saved up some money. So we, you know, we had a little bit of a springboard. At year five, um, it was when we really were like, okay, I think, I think that we have something here. I was having a hard time keeping up with like emails and orders and, um, you know, there were different, uh, we started after Eric quit and we started working together. We yeah. started traveling a lot to like doll conventions internationally and meeting collectors. And what was the uh, first doll convention like? Eric, do you want to answer that one? I think what's the first one we went to the one in Canada? 
Dull North? Yeah, I think so. We, yeah. We drove there from New York with our dog yeah. in a van. Um, wow. With, with, a, with, a bunch, with a bunch of dolls in the backseat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I think we had to lie to customs about that too. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> But, oh, uh, they're for they're for my niece. Yeah, just, yeah, yeah. She left them at the house. Yeah, I don't know. It's, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, that was that was a. I mean, well, the thing about doll conventions is like everyone's a little. Every doll convention is a little bit different because each type of doll has a different type of collector. Mm. And so, like for example, Pigeon falls into like kind of three categories where she's an artist doll because I'm an artist and I make her, and so that's sort of the main character she fits in ca- category she fits in. Um, the second one is she's technically what's known as a BJD or a ball jointed doll, which has to do with her engineering and the fact that she's made out of resin and, um, and ball jointed dolls are at a certain price point because they're resin and they're, they're hand cast. They're sure, a more sure. expensive. And they have multiple parts with joints and they're strung internally with elastic. So you can pose them. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. As opposed okay. to like a, like a normal fashion doll, it's sort of plugged in. Sure. And kind of moves that way. But the, the string and the ball joints enable her to pose and really kind of do a lot more than a typical fashion doll would. Yeah. And then she's also a fashion doll because the expression and the way that I, execute the doll is very fashion forward and it's about sure. fashion illustration and fashion silhouettes and that sort of thing. So, um, I can go to a fashion doll convention. I can go to a ball jointed doll convention. I can go to an artist doll convention and I still kind of fit in, but then there's also like reborn dolls, which are like those silicone lifelike baby dolls that oh, yeah. people make. And they're really, yeah. they're incredibly, um, made like that you know they look like up close it looks like still looks like a real baby like <laughs> and but people take, take them really fantastical ways and they make them like like avatar babies or mm. vampire babies yeah or, you know uh so there's there's that there's um antique dolls there's vintage dolls there's all these different types of 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 doll collecting so each each convention you go to sort of caters a little bit to a different audience sure so the first one we went to was um technically a, an anime convention called Anime North. So it was Canada's largest anime convention. So it's sort of like a Comic-Con. Um, and then they had a small wing called Doll North, which mm-hmm. was specifically about ball jointed dolls. And yeah, it was a, it, it, uh, we were there for like two days and, um, I, don't, I think Eric was better at it than I was as far as like talking to people and, uh, just explaining to people what like the doll was. And cause you know, people just, a lot oh, of people, doll collectors are interesting. Yeah, and it was my first real exposure to them. Yeah, and, you, so. and it's really interesting as well because, as you said yourself, you have social anxiety. But then, when I was asking about the specificities of the the doll, you explained the ball joint, uh, the ball jointed doll aspect to me, and, and I mean this as a compliment in a salesman way. I think it's interesting how the dynamic goes back and forth with a couple when they're working together especially i think i think it's good because eric isn't isn't really like naturally like a doll person he doesn't want to collect dolls he know he knows about it and he's interested in it because i think it's our world it's our, a lot of it's our world now but um he's he's not like he doesn't want to go to doll conventions and look at dolls and collect dolls and talk about dolls so <laughs> sure i think it's he's, like he's oh, able like a- to explain it to people in this way that like an outsider would understand i mean i, I do appreciate them as an art form so i appreciate the aesthetics of a beautiful doll that really appeals to me yeah but i don't necessarily want to um hold it or play with it different skills that support the same thing because also when you make the thing sometimes people i imagine would ask you questions about the doll that might even be confusing because yeah i i I think i have so much information in my head about it because there is so much that goes into it that it's hard for me to kind of like whittle it down to something digestible to um 
someone who's just trying to figure out what this is. Yeah. <laughs> right. And then I also imagine at the conventions, you do have that the range of knowledge and experience of people who might be curious about it. But then, you know, you might have just done one where everyone is very familiar with Pigeon. And then so it's like, wait, I got to explain my act uh, yeah, to yeah, this uh, strange it's yeah, of, yeah, It's always sort of hard to know where who people are what what they know coming into it because sure especially when you have you know social media presence and audience you you're you start explaining to people and you're like oh this is this and i make this doll and, she, and they're like i know i follow you like, okay. <laughs> you get that a lot too or you assume somebody might know who you are and then they're like what what are you talking about and you're like, i was out on top this girl was looking at me and then she goes are you gay and she said it exactly like the old gag uh-huh. on the show. <laughs> and so I went, oh, yeah, this, that, that, yeah, thanks. You know, And she was like, no, 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 I was wanting to know, because if you are, and then she was referring That's to something so else. And I was, and I, I, felt, yeah. <laughs> I felt incredibly stupid because <laughs> I said, oh, it's a joke on my podcast. Anyway, what were you going to say? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, it is interesting. You never know, especially at a convention where people have dolls on the mind. Totally, totally. Uh, but yeah, no, it was a, it was a really fun year, and we did a lot of like we traveled to Europe a few times, and then there's like a language barrier too in a lot of places, which oh sure, a little tricky. But um, but yeah, no, it was, it was great, and you get to meet, you get to real a real sense of like who these collectors are and the people that are interested in um, buying dolls as art. You know, yeah, are, you can talk to them on the internet all you want, but it's really different to sort of like oh, it, experience in per- person. Yeah, yeah, it's a whole different thing, right? And it's a really lovely thing too. Because also you're talking about something that you love. Totally. That's a good starting point. Totally. For totally. sure. Your legal background, and I don't know what type of law it was, but that must help in the business aspect. Um, it was litigation, so not not so much. Oh, okay. But, um, you know, I, I can read a contract, so I have done a fair amount of that. It's it's helpful for sure. I mean, he definitely, like, I work with uh, different different sorts of, like, brands and companies, and you never know quite know where, what kind of projects are going to come up when you're doing this sort of work. And so... Um, it's really helpful that Eric can read a legal document and and digest it because I I would have a really hard time with that. Mostly, what what comes to bear as far as my background is is just a sense of paranoia, which they, <laughs> which they breed into you. Yeah. Um, but you, yeah. let, it, that's helpful in business, though, isn't it? <laughs> can be, yeah, for sure. Yeah, especially when there's like IP issues involved, you know. Which, oh yeah, which we do have to deal with sometimes if we collaborate or. Sure, sure. Well, we're gonna have that in the background for a second. Okay. Oh, it's gone. Look at that. Every once in a while, it goes on for a while. So, you know, Uh, anyway, let's see, where were we? Um, When you first started working together, though, what was the discussion, basically? Um, Let's see. Well, I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think back of that period. I I just um, just did a reflection on uh, each trying to do. I'm doing this thing called Sound Bites. It's just part of Facebook, which is like a. Like a, it's kind of a combination between like TikTok and a podcast where you make these little audio bites mm-hmm. um, that are like under four minutes, but usually about a minute or two. And I was trying to, I did one where I summed up like every year Pigeon Doll into an episode, just where I was like, you know, just trying to explain in a few paragraphs sure. of what was going on and that sort of thing. Um, so I, I do have all of this a little more fresh in my memory than I normally do. Uh, it's usually kind of much more of a blur, but um, I don't remember if there was like a breaking point at work or you just... It just it just seemed like the right time, and we'd been talking about it forever. And it's sort of like you know the life is short now or never. Yeah, yeah, mentality. yeah. Right, you're exactly. Either gonna, you're either going to take the leap or you're just going to keep dragging it out. And um, I think kind of the catalyst was actually you had you had come out with the I guess fifth generation fifth of Pigeon Doll, yeah. which was a sculpt that 
was you'd sculpted digitally for the first time. It was the second digital sculpt I did, but it was it was um it it, it just had a finesse that you could kind of tell that there's something about this one that was like it had she'd like arrived, you know. Yeah. Um and you I You can feel it's like it's almost like when you are working on a piece and you're like, "Oh, it's done." Yeah. Well, I mean, also like in so in my in, in the first like two two or three years of Pigeon Doll, I was I was sculpt I was casting all of my dolls myself as well. So I had a studio in the basement of my Brooklyn apartment that we lived in this weird building that was sort of uh, had artist oriented amenities. So there was like communal workspace. So I, um, I would cast all the dolls myself, which is quite labor intensive. And so I would spend most of the time doll making, actually just making the dolls and yeah. not, doing, not hair or makeup. Which is or, not really scalable as a business. Yeah. You know, <laughs> right, exactly. Unless you're yeah. charging in, you know, a fortune. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And then when you're starting at the starting phase, rather. It's, right. By yeah. the, well, it just got to the point, but by the time I was like finally finished where the doll was done, I was so like just kind of exhausted and over it that I was like, oh, just throw hair on her or whatever, you know, you need to stop caring so much. Um, and so the fifth generation was the first time that I, I felt confident sending her to like a casting studio and outsourcing the, the casting also because I, I had gotten kicked out of one part of my building and moved into another one and I didn't have, it wasn't such a slop space anymore. Uh-huh. I had to keep it really clean and pristine. Yeah. Um, so I couldn't, I couldn't like pour resin and, and do and sand things and drill things. Sure. And, and like blast through it. Cause I imagine with that fatigue that you mentioned at a certain point, cleanliness for your own yeah. uh, sanity just goes out the window and you're just hacking away hacking away well you have to be i mean re- resin um when it's in its um like raw chemical form it's quite toxic to smell oh, okay. the fumes and and the dust is very toxic so you have to wear a mask and you sure so you don't want to do it in a space where you're like living or breathing without a mask oh, okay so okay that was a big element too but um but yeah it just because it was at that level um and and we were getting a lot of orders and we wanted to travel um it just seemed like the time to do it you know yeah and, uh, and yeah, and so then every, every year has been like very different. It, again, going through this, um, this thing that I did where I was like kind of dissecting every year. We're on year nine now of doing Pigeon Doll. And, and congratulations. Uh, yeah, thanks. Yeah. Thanks. And, um, but, but really only, I would say, year four, four and a half of like actually running it as a business. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that but I've been involved with anyway. Well, yeah, that's how long Eric's been involved. But before that, I mean, she still had like a, her social media thing that, that was all going on before before you joined um i mean eric was always involved like we, sure. we lived together we were together yeah. he he was always a part of pigeon doll but where he wasn't practicing law as well yeah um but yeah so uh yeah and then every year just got really different and we started working on like animation projects and we moved out here and um was there something specific that prompted the move out here we knew we wanted to leave Brooklyn. I was kind of outgrowing my the studio space that I had gotten moved into um and it was our apartment had also become a doll workspace and yeah. <laughs> it was primarily a real estate question. So yeah, we just sure. had to get out of New York. We didn't know where we were going to go, but we, we knew we had to get out. So we were looking upstate New York actually, and in the Hudson Valley mm-hmm. and uh, we were looking at houses and I think I was just sort of like, you know, I've always wanted to live in California, in Southern California. I don't know if it's um, a forever thing, but if we're ever going to do it, we should do it now because we won't do it again if we don't. Right. Um, so let's just try it out and see. And there were just a lot of people that lived out here that I was friends with, that I wanted to spend more time with. And I was like, you know, let's just, let's just do it. We're, this is, this is the time to do it if we're ever going to do it. So like moving's a hassle and you might as well just do it where you want to go. Not like, well, I'll move there for a little while. You know, I hear that sometimes from people. I'm thinking I might move here and then eventually like, no, there's no, the eventually doesn't really, (laughs) 
doesn't come to pass. Just yeah. go. But yeah, no, it was great. So we we um, got rid of a lot of stuff and mm-hmm. we uh, packed up a U-Haul pod and sent all of our stuff to California ahead of us. And we drove across country for a month and visited friends along the way and family. It's fun. And, um, we had we didn't know where we were going to live yet here. We were yeah. just like, we'll figure it out. And um, like as we were driving across country, we sort of negotiated a, a sublet and and it all just kind of worked out really well. And yeah. uh, literally as I was... Um, as we were, we had just gotten to the West Coast. Should I wait until? Uh, you know what? Let me just make sure that door is closed. I think it is. But the windows here are like tissue paper. Yeah. So, and now a special word from. Hi, Divas. It's me, Rubber Child. And if you want to, I would appreciate it if you could check out the link in the description box down there, a little bit lower, for my GoFundMe for my medical transition. I would really appreciate it. And even if you can't, a little share is free, a little like is free. And I appreciate it, and I love you all. Mm. Mm. And don't you want to return that love? So that's right. Just take those fingers and go down just a little bit further. And uh, and <laughs> press right where you know where you should. <laughs> oh, see? You, you already feel the difference. Now, mm-hmm. donate and share. Do both. If you can't donate, just share. Okay. Traveling across country. We're traveling across with our dog. With, we're traveling across oh, yeah. country with our dog. We had just gotten to the West Coast. We were like literally on the beach looking at the ocean. Yeah. And I got this email from a producer in New York who was looking to do a, uh, a social media uh, show on, on Snapchat with include uh, about dolls and salons and hair. Mm-hmm. And she had been recommended to me through a friend and I thought I still lived in New York. So she was like, she's like, Oh, I'm, I'm thinking of this thing. Can you come and meet me? I'd love to like discuss help having you as a collaborator on this project. It's like, actually, I just moved to California, but it ended up working out. And, and we shot three seasons of the show called Tiny Hair Together, which is where you take Pigeon through this little salon that was being built for her and, and New York. And, um, it was a Snapchat show that I did for like a year and a half. And, but, but it was great. It was really great that that came right then because. I didn't feel, I felt like I got to live in both places. So I was going to New York like every three months to work anyway. Yeah. Uh, and then I got to see all my friends that way. So I really, I was like, wow, this really worked out well in the pandemic hit. So, right. you know, <laughs> now, are you, are you thinking about resuming being bi-coastal when I guess life is more closer to life? I mean, both of our families live on the East coast. Yeah. So, um, I mean, we're going to go home for Thanksgiving this year. Oh, good. Yeah. Um, so we'll be, we'll be going back in a few weeks, uh, for that. And, uh, Eric, Eric went back actually last year for, um, like six months. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I had, um, a parent had cancer. Oh, I'm sorry. I was the only one with the, I have two siblings, but they both have children. So I was the only one that could sure. quarantine and then isolate with them right? because he was immune compromised, um, and help them like during that period. Right. So that must've been a lot to go through. It was a lot. Um, you know, it was at my childhood home upstate, which I hadn't lived at in like over 20 years. Sure. Um, sure. Close quarters. With yeah. My parents. So. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot. Uh, I, I should, we should say every, every, his dad's fully recovered. He's, he's doing great. So, I'm, yeah. Terrific. I'm glad. I'm glad to hear it. What's your dad's name? Uh, Franco. Well, Franco, I'm very happy to hear it. If you happen to be listening, yeah. uh, I know Franco's a big fan of the show, so yeah. I just want to throw that in. But uh, that, yeah, that's quite a lot uh, for both of you, really, because feeling so alone, totally yeah, by yeah. yourself. It, and then, it was it was strange to for that to happen during the during the um, 
pandemic for Eric to have to leave for so long, but it was because of the pandemic because he needed somebody to live with. No, him of course, time. of course. Yeah. The pandemic's brought <laughs> yeah. so many great reasons and, and things. Yeah. yeah. But, but I mean, the, the silver lining in that is, is because I was alone so much, I, um, I didn't have anything to do except look at TikTok, which kind of got me into TikTok, which brought on this whole new chapter of Pigeon Doll. That's so, right. Yeah. That's, you know, that that became a big, a big part of it that Eric was gone. I had the time to like work on TikToks until three in the morning or just start on them whenever, you know, and I could not worry about because our, our, we have a, we have a new apartment now that's a little bit bigger, but our last apartment um, in Hollywood was, was quite tiny. So it was very difficult to film and work and do all that oh, sort of sure. stuff in the same space. What are your individual sleep habits? Um, we're pretty much on the same schedule. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm trying to get up earlier now uh, and go to bed earlier just because my schedule's getting more and more full. And I feel like I just don't if, – if I get up earlier, I have more time to myself to work on some stuff before Eric gets up. So I've been trying to wake up a little bit earlier than him. But it's tricky because as it, you know, autumn is here and it's it's so cozy in bed and days are shorter. So <laughs> sleeping season, yeah, really? Yeah, it really is. So um, it's been a challenge. But today I got I got up earlier today and I'm, I'm working on it and that sort of stuff. But um, but yeah, I have we have a two bedroom apartment now and a big living room as well. So uh, we kind of work on two ends of the apartment during the day and then we come together for lunch. And um, but I kind of stay in my little room in the back because it's quieter. And um, I need I need to be back there because the audio is a lot like there's not as much street noise. That sort of sure. Stuff. Sure. Like the stuff I can tape. I can send you some tape. Yeah. Thank you. Stuff. Yes. You, I anytime. Appreciate that, yeah. Any, anytime. You just ask. <laughs> and that's good, too. It's nice to have your own spots in the place and then meet for lunch. It's very sweet. It actually. Is. We haven't yeah. we haven't gotten to any fights about doll hair being in the food in a long time, which used to be quite a quite a source of tension. So. Now, do both of you like to cook? Uh, Eric is the cook. What's your specialty or one or two of them? Um, I, I don't know if I have a specialty. I, I guess Italian. My, my father's an Italian immigrant, so that's sort of my vernacular mm-hmm. um, and his side of the family, obviously. Everybody in Eric's family is very food-oriented. Food oriented, mm-hmm. so. Now, can you cook anything? Um, there are some things I can... I always think when Eric goes away for a while that I've like learned to make a few things, but <laughs> um, while he was gone, you know, there were some things that I, that I made for myself. Um, I'm not... I wouldn't say I'm terrible, but I'm nothing like Eric is, so... Sure. And... Uh, so yeah, it's it's not my where my talents lie. Right. Well, I'm I'm a very limited cook yeah. as well, so I'm always curious about uh, people's skill and uh, interest level. Yeah. With that. that, I mean that that's kind of I I didn't grow up in a family where food was a uh, was something really thought about or celebrated. It was just kind of like something you did to keep going or whatever. So so function yeah. more than anything else. So I've, I've I've learned about and learned to appreciate food through through being with Eric and knowing people in Eric's family and mm-hmm. but, you know just just going to when when I'm with Eric's family and we're all just having dinner together like everyone will just go around the table and talk about foods that they like and don't like like for infinity because that's, <laughs> that's like the topic of they just love food, you know. Yeah. And it seems also from what you just said that your two families are very different. Yes. yes. Yeah. Now, what is your relationship uh, like with your family? Um, my relationship with my family is pretty good. Uh, my, you know, I, I grew up very uh, conservative. Um, my mother was raised a Lutheran, and then she sort of got she and she she my my mom and my dad were um, high school sweethearts, so they met when they were sixteen. And my mother was raised Lutheran, and my dad wasn't raised raised religiously at all, and he converted for my mother. Um, like after they, I guess they dated for two years, they broke up. Um, 
because of the religion thing. And then my dad joined the Navy and he had, uh, became a Christian. And so he wrote my mom and told her that he'd become a Christian and they got married within like two or three months or something. Cause they wow. already spent those two years dating. He was, um, he was also going to, he was stationed in Pearl Harbor in Hawaii and my mom wanted to go to Hawaii. So I think she, <laughs> I think the marriage was kind of like, okay, let's go. Like sort of thing. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so my family moved around a little bit growing up. So my dad was in the Navy until I was born. Uh, I was born in San Francisco. He was stationed there at the time and he quit when I was born. And I was raised mostly in Florida and like the Tampa area. And then um, my family moved to Lancaster County, Pennsylvania when I was nine. So I, a little in, in Florida, they got involved with like the sort of evangelical. Oh, okay. Um, sure. That type. And then when we moved to Pennsylvania, we went to like a reformed Mennonite evangelical church. So there was like a slight Amishy element to it. Oh, okay. Wow. But also like speaking in tongues and casting out demons and that sort of stuff as well. Wow. A lot of flavors. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and so that, yeah, that was sort of my, my world until I moved to New York when I was 19. That's wild. Mm -hmm. It's it's weird to think about. Um, and when I tell stories about it, I'm like, I can't believe that was my life. Like, <laughs> you know, I, 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 I never, I never really fit into it, but, um, but yeah, but my relationship with my family is fine. You know, my, my mom and I have just sort of agreed to disagree about stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and we, we try to find things in common more than the things that we don't, but you know, sure. we still have things that we, we uh, argue about and, and are sources of tension and stuff. So it's tricky, but my mom acknowledges that, you know, I have always been this way and, um, and she loves Eric and, you know, we're, we're, we're cool, but there's some underlying worldview things that'll never be resolved, which sure. is always hard. Sure. Well, I'm glad it's at a better place though than I think I imagined. Yeah, I had it. It took some line drawing. You know, there was some. You know, my mom wouldn't let um, Eric and I stay in the same room when we came to visit her for a long time, and so it's like, okay, I'm not going to visit you then because I'm an adult and this is my life, right. and uh, you have to you have to let us be adults so you have to respect us we, i'm not going to sleep on the couch that doesn't it's too small for me like this is not realistic right and so eventually she's like okay you're right you're an adult and you know that's those sorts of things had to took a little fighting but so it sounds like you had to be kind of a hard negotiator yeah yeah with that yeah yeah and when did you know that you were gay it was a it was it's, it's a very gray area for me sort of my sure. coming out because i um all of my life, especially sort of being such a, a gender nonconforming child and um, very outwardly so. Mm. Uh, and when you say outwardly so, in what way? Just because, because I'm thinking about um, the restrictions sort of that you mentioned earlier yeah. or the things that were frowned upon. Well, I mean, just the, the constantly drawing girls, I think, was the main thing. I mean, you know, just normal things like, you know, sissy running and, and caring about fashion and sure. my hair to be done a certain way. And I was just kind of finicky. You know, it's, it's weird. So like as a, as a teenager, I had a, a close group of, of male friends and we were never like boyfriends or anything, but like, I didn't actually have a very like sexually repressed teenagehood. Mm -hmm. Um, because like all of my friends were, we were all, everyone's kind of like punk and cool and alternative. And yeah. there was a, nobody, it was weird because we were all sort of raised in the same community. So nobody ever said words like gay or queer or, you know, but. Um, that's kind of how everybody lived is there's everyone was sure. sort of very, everybody liked to play with sexuality a little bit. And so, um, I wasn't like actually sexually active in my teens, but like, you know, I was definitely like 
kissing boys and wearing dyeing my hair blonde and wearing dresses and you know just having fun and being kind of silly and queer but you should you should set up the context a little bit because you were also homeschooled so oh yeah this wasn't happening in like a um, public school environment yeah yeah okay so again yeah this is a lot of i'd say maneuvering back and forth because it's not like well you know i wore this outfit under my school uniform and then right. when i got to school right. I, uh, my mom pulled me out in third grade because I was getting made fun of so much for, for, uh, by the kids at the school. This, um, this girl, uh, threw a tampon at me and while I was on the swing set and told me that I was going to start my period soon because I was a girl. And I told my mom about that. And so she pulled me out and started, uh, homeschooling me just because it, it was, it was really bad. Like just every time sure. I went out for recess, I was literally ganged up on by everybody yeah. all the time. And, um, and so, yeah, so I had this very sort of like, sheltered existence where once once people kind of knew who i was and appreciated me my sort of gender non-conforming became a very non-issue um but but whenever i was in a situation where i was meeting like a bunch of strangers all at once they'd kind of be like who is this guy like why does he love kate moss so much like, you know, like, <laughs> um yeah so i was spared a lot of things but even though i did grow up in a very conservative home i also had a lot of freedom because i didn't I wasn't exposed to a lot of people. And there are, and also because our church was Mennonite, there was a sort of general pacifism where I feel like I, the reaction to me was never violent or angry. You know, people didn't quite know what to do with me, but it was, you know. Like a benign confusion rather than. Yeah, uh, than, than, out, than fully angry if I'd maybe grown up in like the deep south. Or something, sure, you know? sure. Or maybe in a different uh brand of religion right right i always think of them as brands i don't know more. yeah that's not, <laughs> it's, it's not incorrect yeah. <laughs> the merch could use some up you know but whatever yeah but uh to answer your question um i consider my coming out to be when i told my mom i was gay which i was about 24 and i had a boyfriend and so i figured that that was the time to you know say that like i have somebody in my life and this is really who i am and it was it was very painful for both of us because my mom had, there were always rumors about me going around in the church and, mm -hmm. and my, my family had left at one of the church we'd been going to for a long time because this one girl was telling people that I was gay. And so it'd been this fight that had, that my mother was always fighting for, for me or with me in the church. Um, and to come out to her was a little bit like saying like that was for nothing because not that everybody was right. They shouldn't, you know, like, I, I was a kid like there's no i wasn't sure there's no justification for right the treatments but whether you were or were not or whatever but yeah exactly but um i i, I think i think that was really hard for her and it was hard for me to to tell her that because i felt that sort of pain of like you know everybody was right sort of thing you know like as if you yeah. were betraying her or a little bit a little bit like that she always knew that you were different let's yeah. say mm -hmm. uh so did it come as that much of a shock uh, in that way, in like a betrayal sense or anything like that to her? Or was it more just the actual, um, you know, saying it and sort of like acknowledging it? Um, I think it was, I think she was in a lot of denial. Um, my mom has a lot of sort of gentle artistic men in her family in general who are not out gay men. Mm -hmm. And so I think she uh, just kind of just assumed I was like them, you know? Sure. And I... I can't say one way or the other about anybody else, but you know, I, I think because I had such gentle artistic men in my family that my mother was familiar with, um, it, she was kind of surprised, you know, you wouldn't, you would, you would, when you look at who I was as a child and photos of me and stuff, you're like, Oh yeah, that's a little gay boy, <laughs> like you're a little queer kid or something, you know, 
but I, I think she just, she really was in complete denial about it just because she, she was used to sort of that, that sort of guy. Sure. And also with the heavy religious, uh, upbringing yeah. and, uh, devoutness. Right. And it's also just the community that she was raised in. You know, she was, it was, uh, you know, I, I grew up in the eighties and nineties and, and she was fed a lot of misinformation about gay people and sure. And she was scared, you know, and that, that was part of it too. You know, I was pulling a couple of clips from some old PTL stuff because of the eyes of Tammy Faye. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you look at Tammy Faye and she did a lot of wonderful things. And then this tape happened to have a bunch of the commercials that actually aired during that time. Uh, and you're like, oh, yeah, right, right, right. Not, yeah. not, not all that. It's not all charming stuff. It's not all just fun and, you know, totally, having totally. a gas. Yeah. You're like, yee. And that stuff was really pumped into people's minds mm-hmm. who watched a lot of the stuff in addition to going to church all the time. Totally, totally. When you did come out to your mom, you'd um, been living in New York already for five years. Mm-hmm. What was your initial time in New York like? I mean, it must have, um, I imagine, been a, quite a shock. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, it was a shock for, so. you know, I, I moved to New York for college and I went to Parsons School of Design, uh, which was like the only school I applied to because I, it, it, it's, a, it's primarily known as a, a, a school for fashion designers. And I as a teenager, loved the world of fashion. That was my, my escape, mm-hmm. uh, much more than it is now. And I loved, I loved 90s supermodels and I loved 90s designers. And it was uh, like a really great time for that, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, totally. It, uh, it doesn't really, I was talking to uh, Sam Sparrow and I did a movie club on Unzipped. And it just seems like there's nothing that's the same level of that. Yeah. Now. I mean, it's, it's the era of like the supermodel. It's the era yeah. of, uh, it's when like that sort of grand, like, you know, McQueen and and John Galliano and these sort of grand heightened fashion Mugler and all these things were going on that was just really exciting and mm. sort of unlike anything else. And so I, I went there because I loved I loved the world of fashion and all the fashion designers that I loved went to Parsons. So, sure, you know, but um, I really had no business going there because my family had no money and it was quite <laughs> it was it was quite an expensive school. But um, but I, I figured it out and I, I went there for two years and. Um, yeah, it was, I had a, I was just very, very green when I moved to New York and there was a lot of, uh, learning I had to do. And it took, it took, I guess it was like five years to really like, you know, it, t- it took me meeting, I, I'd known gay people in high school and in Pennsylvania and stuff, but there's just not a lot of gay people. And so it took me meeting like a whole bunch of different kinds of queer people to realize that it's, that's a hundred, you could, there's a billion ways to be gay because there's yeah. a billion gay people. Sure. I had to get over my own prejudices and my own things that, you know, I, sure. I, I was brainwashed too, like, like a lot of people. So it just, it just took me a while to, to digest it and really figure out like how I, how I fit in. And it took to, it took moving to a big city like New York to do that for me. What were some of the prejudices you think you had that you remember really clearly about either being gay yourself or how gay should be? Um, I, I don't know. I mean, seem, they feel kind of very naive or silly, but like, I don't know, like, but that's okay though, because we're talking. You know, right. you, you went from an environment where you're homeschooled, right? And then New York is the absolute opposite of that. And you're in school with uh, this entirely, yeah, yeah. Mixed, there were a lot of diverse, a lot of, uh, yeah. Um, not entirely gay. I meant entirely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Everyone's <laughs> yeah. gay. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, if yeah. you go to Parsons, send your kid to Parsons. They're going to be gay. They're I just want to let gay. you know. Um, I'm trying to think of like what specific prejudices I had. Uh, I, I don't even know. I don't even know if I can articulate. I mean, I them. think what you always tell me is that the only models you had were the people 
the, the very, very tiny minority of people in your small town that yeah, you could sure. positively identify. And that's, that was the limit of your also my, well, perception my, of my mom would always be friends sure. with like the ex gays at our church. So, oh, so I had a lot of, I knew wow. a lot of ex gays too. So wow. that, that sort of peppered my view of things as well. I can imagine. And uh, not in a good way. So. I've never really had a conversation with an ex-gay. I would like to, to find out yeah. what the situation is, the mindset. What's the most common topic of conversation with it from an ex-gay? Do they talk about being an ex-gay a lot? I don't think, I don't think, I don't remember them talking about it a lot specifically. Um, they would just be like, that's my old lifestyle. That sure. life is a lie. That is unfulfilling. That is an empty, full of sex life. So stuff, kind of stuff like that. Um, a lot of them had like, married women now that i'm not friends with any of these people because they were my parents friends but i've seen i've seen time pass and i've seen where they've ended up and they all always end back to being gay men because they're gay men um, <laughs> it, it never lasts but right. uh it th things get quite quite uh dysfunctional and crazy there's some there's some real weird, dark people that my mom knew so i imagine you must have seen a lot of strange dark behavior like you said yeah that was like quote-unquote unexplained but you know is the end result of intense self-repression mm -hmm. or repression that's also reflected in the community etc yeah well I, I think people i think i think aids probably scared a lot of people and so they ran to the church for to escape that sort of you know thing i think people were scared i i don't know it's, it's hard for me to really know because i was not an adult at the time and they were sure but um but they certainly like when i would hear people talk about um, their old lifestyle and stuff. It was never in a, in a never in a positive, positive life. Yeah. And uh, so I, I think that probably affected my, my view of things as well. I'm sure the whole empty, meaningless aspect, or you would hear that sort of thing. I think a big part of, of me coming out, I mean, it really was around the same time that I really started digesting religion and the religion that I was brought up in and how I actually felt about it. Because when I, I, you know, my family went to church like three times a week. Wow. Uh, I was in youth group. We, my family, my parents were on the worship team. Like we were just always at church. Just, everybody we knew was in church. You didn't know anybody that wasn't a Christian. Mm -hmm. And I really didn't. I didn't, I didn't, uh, I mean, my, fr all my friends that I now know, know now, um, are, are not believers anymore either. We've all kind of moved past the church, but, uh, at the time we were all just kind of confused and this is how we were raised. And, uh, when I finally started like learning what, because I was homeschooled, I didn't know what evolution was. Sure. I really, I doesn't, I didn't really understand it. I was like, yeah, she was like, oh yeah, people believe in evolution and they believe that a snake turned into a monkey. Isn't that crazy? And you're like, yeah, that sounds crazy. And you don't actually learn about like, <laughs> sure. You know? Yeah. Well, also when you were a kid and you just, you hear something like this is silly. You're like, yeah, right. Yeah, sure. Yeah. That's silly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so when I started teaching myself like evolution and natural selection and all those sorts of things, I started to put together a worldview that, and I was like, oh, there's a lot of things that I was brought up to believe that are not true or I don't believe them anymore because I've, I've re-educated myself. And so that was a big part of it too, is just learning, learning um, just sort of normal education things that most people have. But sure. when, when you don't have that, when you move to a big city and you're kind of been told to um, think a certain way about the world that, you know, like I remember when my mother first visited me in New York, we were walking around the East Village and there was a, a business that just had like a Buddha head in the, in the window. And my mom looked at it and she's like, Oh, that's so upsetting. I'm like, what? She's like, Oh, it's a false God. She's like, does it really bother you to be around so many false gods all the time like this? And I'm like, 
it's just a, a boot. It's just a store display, mom. Like, <laughs> like people are allowed to, but like, but that's how small our world was yeah, where like, sure. you, just, you just don't experience any other cultures or anything like that. It's very, it's, it's ingrained very, it's so very, deeply. Yeah. It's very culty. <laughs> it's very, well, that's, yeah. that's true too. Yeah. yeah. What was the experience like when you started uh, finding this stuff out or, or teaching yourself this stuff? And, and again, this is more evidence of the autodidact uh, in you, um, which makes sense too about how you went about learning how to make dolls and and everything else. Because I imagine once you started learning about how things really yeah, were, yeah. it's like, wait, I'm not going to go to anyone else. I'm going to dig my, it. My theory about that is that the homeschooling actually played a big role in Josh's ability to self-teach. Oh, interesting. Okay. Have a lot of self-initiative and be creative. Yeah. Um, as someone who went to public school yeah. and, you know, had immigrant parents who were constantly pushing to do well and mm -hmm. climb the ladder and um, basically meet external expectations. Sure. Um and you know be in an environment where it's all about like discipline and rules and if you just follow the rules you'll rise mm -hmm. um you know it, it stifles creativity and self-initiative to a certain extent unless you're an exceptional person and i think the fact that josh i was left on my own a lot to do what i wanted in my high school year so yeah i did i did learn to teach myself things very early and, yeah um i mean i remember very specifically what sort of led me on the path i was uh there was this art art group in new york that was doing a hell house but as an art piece mm -hmm. so do you know are, do you know what a hell house is i no, i i was thinking like haunted house but it's it's like it's, so it's 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 something that churches do mostly in the south during halloween time and it's like an alternative to a haunted house every room is a different sort of sin or scenario um, oh, wow where so one will be like a room with a rave and it'll be about drugs and ecstasy and mm -hmm. there'll be a, a room about gay people and aids and there'll be one about um abortion and a girl a little girl getting an abortion and <laughs> and whether they make the right decision or not either satan comes in and drags them to hell or jesus comes and saves them oh and, wow and it's uh and so you walk through this room and it's supposed to scare you into into religion um and so people do it as like a ministry to the church and sure. so um I guess certain churches started doing it and then they became so popular that they would sell scripts to other churches so they could put on these hell houses yeah. and save people during Halloween. Because <laughs> that's what Halloween's that's what, about. That's what Halloween's you know, for. We just saved a bunch of people this weekend. We didn't get to talk about that yet. And there was uh, there was an artist group in, uh, in New York that had bought one of these scripts and mm -hmm. was performing it, but as as an art piece it's like not yeah, as brilliant yeah and um so i just got really interested in hell houses and so i would watch youtube videos about them and i wanted to see what the real ones look like yeah and that eventually led me to i think i think there's a richard dawkins uh he he uses one as an example or something and and so that led me to learn who richard dawkins was who's a who's a scientist who talks a lot about god and he has a book called the god delusion which is sort of what changed changed my perspective on everything it's written for it's a book written for people that were brought up in the sort of American evangelical church mm -hmm. and helps them digest like the things that you were uh, brainwashed into thinking and sure. gives you the sort of logical way to be like, this is this is why they want you to think this way. And this is why that doesn't actually make sense. Um, and so, yeah, it, it was really it was really reading The God Delusion and learning about Richard Dawkins that really gave me the language to finally know form a worldview. And then that really helped coming out sure for me yeah because i was like oh well if i don't believe this at all then this is so much easier to be like 
oh yeah, I'm, I'm gay because I like every, everything I was shoved down my throat all this year does, doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. And, uh, cause it, it really gets in you. It gets, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm quite a few years away from that now, but looking back, I remember just feeling like the religion was just so wound up inside me that there was no way to get rid of it. Like it would have gutted me to let it go of it. And sure. Um, but you can, and it's, and it's very freeing. <laughs> yeah. It just takes a little time. Right. And that actually you often say that the harder thing you did with respect to coming out to your mom was not coming out as gay or queer, but coming out, coming as, out an as an atheist was, it's, it's, it's trickier. Now, well, around what time would that have been? I mean, I didn't, I didn't come out as an atheist to her. I think she just saw it on my Facebook profile. And, <laughs> yeah. Maybe the easiest way sometimes yeah. I mean, for those what, things. Yeah. Once, once I came out, I was really like, I was like, I don't, I don't, I'm not going to be gentle with anybody. Like after I came out with my mother, which was quite hard. Yeah. Um, I didn't come out to anybody else. I just all of a sudden was just gay and I just expected everybody else to just be cool with it. And for the most part, everybody was. Um, but I just wasn't, I stopped being gentle with people's religious views. I stopped mm-hmm. being, you know, if it had to do with me, then I just talked about it openly and, and yeah. I was an atheist and that's what it was. And I'm sorry if you think I'm going to hell now, but like, I can't, I can't, I can't change that. Like, yeah, you know, I can't help you with I can this. Do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, 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 it's still hard though. But, um, she and I talked about that for a long time and, uh, I, I told her about the God delusion and told her how much that it, it had really sort of helped me digest things and, so she said that she would read it if I read this other book that was like sort of the Christian response to the God delusion. And, uh, I, I don't know if she ever read it. I don't, I don't think she said she did, but I don't think she did. Um, cause we talked about it afterwards. I was like, you didn't, you didn't, read it, but it's, it's okay. Like I, I didn't, I didn't expect to convert my mother. I was like, that, sure. that, that is not what I was aiming to do, but I did want, I did like every child, you want your parent to understand where you're coming from and who you are. And, um, I wanted her to know, I think, I think what I wanted her to know mostly was not that, that I was, uh, ignoring God or, or like, you know, just wanting to do what I wanted just because I, you know, wanted to be sinful that I'd really thought about this and really right. like there's, yeah. there's, there's a, you know, uh, I digested it over and over again and it was something that I'd really thought about and I wanted her to know that, yeah that it wasn't something that I took lightly. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so that was, that was harder, I think for both of us. <laughs> Yeah, I can imagine. I'm sure it was a long process too. Of it was, and it's still sort of ongoing. You know, like Mm -hmm. you know, whenever it's it's always an awkward thing to talk to her whenever religion comes up, um, or whenever things in the past come up that you know, there's this very audible silence, weird awkwardness where she's like, I don't know what to say to you about because because it's part of like when you're in the church, especially it becomes part of your everyday language. If something good happens, you say praise the Lord, praise God. Sure, and. And I told her once, I was like, I, I really need you to stop using that language around me. It really, it really, un- I find it very unsettling. And mm-hmm. like, God has nothing to do with this. And like, <laughs> like, you know, because like I, my train arrived on time or something like that's not, you know, it's, it's <laughs> yeah, I so feel it like might, you're hitting me yeah. over the head with something that's silly. So I asked her to stop and that, that was hard. And, you know, my, my sister who also lives near my mom is not a believer anymore either. And mm-hmm. so between the two of us, we kind of have a support group of, of dealing with mom and trying to, <laughs> trying to be ourselves but be gentle around her as much as we can because we don't want to upset her unnecessarily well, sure we need to be ourselves and yeah of our lives do you have other siblings i do um i have two sisters that are uh, identical twins um one lives in pennsylvania near my mom and one lives near uh one lives in new zealand actually she married a kiwi um in college and they have a family there and then i have a younger brother as well and um, what's their re- religious 
tendencies? Um, my my one sister is um, still a believer, but a very sort of progressive, uh, open minded believer. Uh, and my other sister is not. And my brother and I don't talk a lot. I I think he's still a believer, but we're we're a little distant with each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but hopefully that'll change. Hopefully, hopefully he's uh, he's he's going through some rough stuff right now, and but yeah, we 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 haven't talked in a few years, so. Oh well, I'm sorry yeah. to hear that. That's okay. In terms of culture that was allowed in the house, were there any limitations on pop culture, movies, music? Yeah, yeah, lots, lots, lots of limitations. <laughs> um, I, my my uh, like sort of pop culture knowledge. I mean, I've, I've taught myself pretty much everything at this point, but yeah, um, it was it was quite scattered and limited. My my mom had um, very particular ideas about things. What well, the one thing that. I think she knew that I was really interested in and she found really alarming is she hates the idea of witches. She does not like witches. And in particular, she doesn't like when there's good witches. <laughs> so um, any time, any kind of show where there's a witch who wasn't evil uh, was completely off limits. So I wasn't allowed to watch Bewitched. The Wizard of Oz was edited. So whenever Glinda comes down and says that she's a good witch, like that was cut out of the movie. Was that one of those edited for religious customers? No, she would just ones? edit it herself. She just had like a VCR oh, and a like. Wow. She, yeah, she so was... it was a very clunky edit. It was like <laughs> all of a sudden Glinda's bubbles popped and she's the witch is there or something, you know, like it's not because <laughs> she says it pretty quickly. And sure. Um, in general, like secular music was not something that was uh uh encouraged yeah. or you know one thing that i wasn't allowed was um the golden girls because really? my, my mom thought they had a bad attitude <laughs> she didn't she my mom doesn't like put down humor so that was a thing too oh, okay so like the golden girls is like the one thing that you feel like it could slip by anyone just yeah. you know i don't know why but. she did not i was not allowed to watch the golden girls but <laughs> there was a garage sale down the street from my house and they had like a free section of just stuff they're trying to get rid of and they had an old black and white tv and i remember i was probably like nine or ten years old and i remember i got the tv it was free i snuck it up to my room i plugged it in and because i was homeschooled golden girls were on at like 2 p.m or so it was like the <laughs> afternoon show and i would lock my door and turn it on really quietly and mm-hmm. just sit there really close and watch golden girls by myself <laughs> and sort of snicker <laughs> like you know and i had to do that with sort of like secular radio stations and that sort of stuff to one sure. of, you know, if i wanted to listen to that that type of music and as i got a little bit older like 15 16 then uh she relaxed a little bit and uh, everything had to be sort of cleared through her so as long as there wasn't like outward swearing or too much stuff so um yeah so i I was able to sort of like get into i was really into bjork and really into like tori amos and that sort of stuff and yeah as a teenager um but yeah there i mean it's as far as like no gay culture anything like we weren't allowed to watch will and grace at home anytime Mm -hmm. anything gay came up on tv we were told to turn it off like that was that was another sort of very off-limits thing do you remember the first sort of uh obviously gay pop culture thing that you either were drawn to or smuggled into the house um i remember well there's a few there's a few (laughs) i mean someone's a golden girls yeah yeah but you know outside of that i um because i was homeschooled uh, my mom loves musicals too so she it's an interesting uh (laughs) there's a there's a very interesting dynamic there i don't think she's ever going to hear this so it's okay but (laughs) She loves musicals and, and during my high school year, she wanted to do like a, like a introduction to mu- to musicals for me because she thought I would like them. And so she had me watch like Xanadu and like, like, 
And, Amazing. And sound, like, all, all, all I really thought you were yeah. going to say like Carousel or something. No, no, no. no. Xanadu. Xanadu. Right, right there, yeah. And I remember she wanted me to watch um, Cabaret, which has <laughs> homosexuality. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, But she didn't want to watch it with me. And so I was, I was probably like 16 or 17. I was an older teen. Um, but she, she rented it for me. She put it on and she's like, and, and she's like, I, and she's told me she didn't want to talk about it when it was done, but she thought it was like an important film for me to see because that, she liked it, you know? Yeah. And, and, and it is, it is an important film. It is. It's amazing uh, too, with the, the, again, the devoutness and all of that, that, you know, she recognized that the importance of that art yeah. that you would, um, resonate with it. Yeah, no, d- definitely. I mean, the, I think it was always a struggle for her. I, I think, I think naturally, my mother is a very open-minded, cool person who yeah. um, isn't uh, isn't very quick to judge. But she was brought up in a community and taught to think about things in a certain way. And um, a lot of that, I there, it's a lot. It's tricky because you can kind of talk to my mom about things, but you can't. You have to know what her like trigger words are. Oh, sure. You know, because sure. there's certain things that she's been taught, or like that's the agenda, or that's the thing. You know, and so right. if you can find a way to talk about this subject abstractly and not hit those trigger words or like little <laughs> minefields. Um, you can actually get her to open up about things and that sort of stuff. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, no, she, she loves, she loves like, I mean, my, my mom likes a lot of things that would be sort of deemed queer culture, you know, sure. But, but yeah, she, she didn't really know that it was. So in, in a way that's good. Cause she can then enjoy them. Totally. Totally. Yeah. What about your first uh, boyfriend? You had kissed, made out all right. that kind of stuff in pennsylvania mm-hmm. but the first <laughs> sexual experience fully was new york uh yeah definitely new york mm-hmm. and 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 that was just sort of like going out and meeting people and and and, well, and hooking up and that sort of stuff what are your memories of the first time you went to a gay bar that was a full gay bar the first gay bar i went to so this is like i think my s- second year in new york i i wasn't using the word gay yet but i'd done i, I hadn't had like sex but like you know I, I was exploring the queer culture I was kind of going back and forth and digesting things and I had a roommate who I didn't know very well mm-hmm. um, that I'd met on like Craigslist or something and uh, he was he was an out gay guy and he was like well let's go out to a gay bar together and I was like okay yeah sure whatever um, but he took me to the cock um, <laughs> and so <laughs> right in at the deep end, right in yeah. the deep end. and i remember there was like actual penetration happening on the bar between the go-go dancers or something like just re- like actual sex on the door and like having to order drinks between their legs right. sort of stuff. Right? and that was a lot that was a lot for me yeah you sure know, I, I was like i'm cool with this but like <laughs> it was it was an eiffel um yeah so yeah i mean like, to, that was i think my first experience at like a gay bar uh, I didn't, that, that, that's never really been my style, that type of going out, you know, I much prefer just like dancing and having fun and, sure. and a, a lighter fare. Not, not that I'm judging that, you know, no, 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 but um, everyone has their yeah, speed of, uh, hangout Nightlife. or type. Yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, t- I mean, the cock is a very specific, it's a very specific, <laughs> and you're looking for very specific but yeah, <laughs> I uh, think when I was first there, it was years and years ago and someone just said, Oh, just don't, don't go past that area there. And I was like, all right, I don't know what's going on. Yeah, it's probably good advice if you're not prepared for that. Yeah, I think that's what it is. Is you need to be prepared for certain things, and when you're not, so that's a remarkable first uh, first bar experience, yeah. gay bar experience. <laughs> <laughs> Lancaster is home to, um, I think, one of the first gay bars in America called the Tally Ho, and I think mm. I also went there, but 
what was fun about that bar is because it was sort of like this time capsule of like sort of 70s queerness. So sure. they had sort of bootleg Tom of Finland drawings on the on the walls and everything was wood panel and there were no windows and it was very sort of like secretive. And they had a dance floor, but the ceiling was only like six and a half feet tall. So I could barely like stand up in that. And, but it was all mirrored and they just go, you know, the, you could tell they were like trying to make the best of it, but also they had to be secretive and sort of like, sure. Keep the, keep the noise down, keep the lights down, like that sort of thing, which is yeah. an interesting thing to see. The kitsch aspect of it too, probably made it a little less daunting yeah. than the other experience. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> in terms of bars around here, you mentioned Akbar before. Is that a favorite place? Um, I would say, yeah. I mean, we haven't been out in a long time. I know uh, it's a strange, it's a strange question but, uh, as now. I but. would say, I would say, as far as like LA gay bars, Akbar is probably the most our style. Mm-hmm. Um, we would definitely go there before we moved to LA. Whenever we'd visit here, like that's yeah. sort of where our friends hung out. And I think that's where I met you. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, mm-hmm. the, the Devon Green the Devin show. show. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I had her send some questions. Oh, you know that Joshua and Eric are incredible together as people like as a unit and as individuals. But I wanted to know from Joshua, what takes it from being a doll to an art piece? What is the one thing that sort of defines it as an exceptional piece of art as opposed to toy collecting? I think the main difference between an art doll and a, and a, uh, uh, I guess what's commonly termed uh, like a playline doll, but there's uh, there's also like some something in the middle which is like a collectible doll that is yeah a little more f- finessed and high end and for an older audience. But um, I I think it's just the amount of attention and detail that you give it. Uh, I I know that there are some people that do similar work to me that don't call their work dolls; they prefer to call it sculpture sure. or articulated sculpture or or after I try to explain to people, I use the word doll to describe my work because the expression is so feminine and it is a sort of doll aesthetic, you know, like the, the way she looks is very doll like. Sure. And, um, and in a lot of ways, the reason, uh, I, I think there's a distinction between like expressing femininity through art and expressing like a doll type of femininity through art and what, sure. and, and pigeon is very specifically the sort of, uh, doll. So I, I call it a doll, but, but tech, but really it, it is sculpture. It is art. You know, um, there's nothing about her that is mass produced. Everything is, is hand made, the wigs, the eyes, the ways of the way their faces are painted, the sure. clothing, everything is, is done with very meticulous attention. So I would say that would be the sort of difference between an art doll and something that is playline that is like mass produced in a, in a factory, even though that, 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 I think is very arguably art too, you know, sure. just because there's 10,000 of something doesn't mean that there isn't a creative person behind it making decisions and expressing themselves. So I think it's also subjective. You know, I definitely think that, um, especially when you sort of start, I, I love antique dolls and vintage dolls and knowing the history of dolls and the way sure. different people, um, viewed themselves or expressed themselves through dolls. So especially the further away you get from a doll being like current, the more it does kind of feel like art because you're like, oh, wow, a doll from the 1920s had this sort of perspective on femininity and liberation and and just sort of cheekiness that dolls had never had before. And that says something and then that's art, you know. So right. it's um, it's it's a good question. I, I, I think of I'm, I'm interested in all dolls. I think they all they all they all speak to me. They all say something to me. So um, just just sort of in different ways. 
do you have a doll collection outside of I'm starting to I and and up until we moved into our new place which is larger um, I didn't really have this space for a lot of dolls so sure I have I have some family dolls that my mom gave me um, and I have a few that I've just picked up here and there usually when I'm interested in like some element to them their articulation mm-hmm. or whatever but uh, I've just started in the past like three or four months collecting some dolls that I've always been interested in uh, that sort of speak to me as far as like the history of dolls. Mm-hmm. Um, so any in particular, I just bought, um, I just bought a sissy doll, mm-hmm. uh, which I, so it's spelled C C I S S Y sissy. And she's the first plastic fashion doll before Barbie. She's made by Madame Alexander and she's big. And what's interesting about her is she has just like a baby doll's head, like a, just a baby face, <laughs> but then she has like a woman's body. So she has little breasts and the waist and she wears high heels and, uh, because I, I think before her, there were like, they don't, this company had only made baby dolls. So when they decided to make like a, an adult woman fashion doll, they just kind of like <laughs> did it in the style of their baby doll. So she has this sort of weird baby woman sure. that, that I, I think is interesting. Um, and her, in the first generation of pigeon doll, she was a much larger doll and she could, um, uh, I could wear, I could buy sissy clothes from the 1950s and they would fit her. So that's when I was first introduced to this doll. I was like, oh, you could buy clothes for this doll and they fit my doll pigeon. Right. That's fine. Um, which isn't true anymore. But, um, so yeah, I started, I started buying her, but she's a very high end doll. She was for very rich little girls in the 1950s, <laughs> 40s and 50s. What did they go for at that time? Um, I think like the model, modern equivalent would be like three or $400. Wow. Yeah. Wow. They were there. I mean, they're very, everything about them is very, meticulous and and finely made sure you know I, th- I think they were mostly like to sit on a shelf sort of doll but right but she comes she has little gloves and purses and pearls and like she's very she's a lady but you know but now, with a baby head <laughs> <laughs> something interesting about collectibles uh, like for instance like the star wars toys uh the that big collection that's in the darth vader head is so expensive in perfect condition because a lot of times it was made for children and children didn't necessarily keep stuff in the best yep. condition is that the same with dolls uh yeah for sure i mean especially for like playline dolls and stuff like one of the reasons that like the number one barbie is so expensive or like the really early ones is because most of them were trashed by kids you know playing with them and now it's really easy those dolls became really valuable so then people started keeping barbies in boxes mm. in like the 70s and 80s 80s and 90s especially yeah so now if you if there's a doll from your childhood that you want want the experience of unboxing superstar barbie or whatever you can find her on ebay for like 80 bucks it's <laughs> like so it's really because everybody kept them in the boxes you right know? um whereas like the earlier earlier dolls it's much harder to find I'm, i wouldn't say like i'm a huge doll collector mm-hmm. i i'll i like to have like one from every sort of era that speaks to me sure so um but uh i also bought a uh she's like a 1940s sewing doll so hmm. she was she's not really a doll she was made to help people learn how to sew oh, okay so she's like a quarter scale mannequin yeah and she comes with sewing patterns and you can make her little dresses and stuff but oh, wow. she doesn't she just stands and she has a very sort of like uh it's not a very pretty face it's just kind of like a mannequin like blank like you know, she doesn't have irises or eyeballs mm. or anything. But I bought her because I thought she was interesting. And I liked that she was like to teach you something. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's a very specific yeah. place in doll history. Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask also about your favorite fashion designers because we talked about that era. But in general, who, who are my favorite they be? fashion designers? Um, I, I tend to like ones that are very like theatrical. Like, mm-hmm. so I love um, like contemporary, like I love Tom Brown. Um, I love. Uh, I love Galliano's work. I love Jean-Paul Gaultier. I love 
uh, McQueen. Uh, I love Mugler. I love, you know, like those, those sorts of like, when it's a little, I love Victor and Rolf because I feel like they also have a very sort of doll aesthetic. You know, mm-hmm. they're, they even make dolls a lot of their, a lot of their couture's, couture clothes that they make into doll scale and put them on these sort of antique porcelain looking dolls. And, um, so yeah, so the, I tend, I tend to go for like that as opposed to a more like practical modern designer. Sure. Mm-hmm. Now let's see what Devin's other question is. How hard is it to transfer your fine art skills from doing cosmetics? on an inanimate object to a human person, for example, Amy. So she's talking about, I did a TikTok uh, where I asked my friend Amy um, of Sugar Pill Shrinkle to, um, uh, if I could try doing makeup on her, because I, I, I do, I paint a lot of doll faces and I get a lot of people that do makeup looks inspired by my dolls but i use art supplies not makeup on a doll and sure also dolls are solid and hard and skin moves and the nice thing about doing doll makeup is it like kind of lasts forever so you have this sort of permanent thing whereas makeup like changes as the night goes on and sort of stuff. <laughs> hopefully um but yeah i, I mean I, i've 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 always thought what i did was sort of makeup adjacent and um amy's an amazing makeup artist mm. and uh and she knows a lot about makeup and products and stuff so uh, I, I don't know. We were just kind of like talking and I was like, do you want to come? And she's also, um, trying, you know, she's on TikTok and she asked me a lot of questions about, um, the way I do things on TikTok. So I was like, well, do you want to come over? I'm interested in learning about makeup. You know, a lot about makeup. If you play dummy for me and let me paint on your face, I'll show you like how I light things and how I cut things down, that sort of stuff. And also just be fun to hang out and yeah. do that, you know? Uh, and so she came over. So to answer Devin's question, I mean, I think the biggest difference is just like the canvas, the texture is very different. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it moves in different ways. Not only does your face move, but skin moves as you're applying something to the brush or, but, um, but the nice thing about doing makeup as opposed to a doll is like, is somebody can move and model and change. You can see the eyebrows move in different directions and that sure. sort of stuff. So that's, that's fun. Um, I'd, I'd like to get more into doing, experimentations with makeup a little bit and um it i i I love i love i follow so many makeup artists and i love i love the art of makeup i love the art of makeup artistry what's that but yeah that's good yeah yeah, the art of makeup artistry artists yes yes yes, i love that (laughs) um so yeah so i guess that would be the main difference is like the the just the canvas is such a different material sure but um but yeah, I mean, Amy has such a great face for makeup, and and I was, I think, I was able to do what I wanted, which I was happy about. I was, I was really worried that I would just ruin her face by the end of the thing. But she came over. She was, you know, uh, she just came over with her face prepped, so I didn't have to do any like foundation or okay, or yeah. any, you know, I, all, all I had to do was paint on top of it. So mm-hmm. it was, it was pretty easy. And then she could, I could, I could be like, okay, if I want to like blend this a little bit more, what are you? She's like, oh, you would use this color to blend it with this, you know. So she was able to also help me um execute the way i wanted it to because when you're painting a doll you you have the the complexion of the doll and then you're putting color on top of it but there's no sort of blending the two together sure yeah. whereas with makeup you have a layer of foundation already there so you already have this sort of like thing that you can kind of give and take a little bit so it's a little easier really mm-hmm. to do makeup because you um you can just paint over what you did with another color and you know just keep piling it on right <laughs> it looks good i just had my first uh makeup experiment the other night for halloween uh, i discovered I, I needed to get concealer because i was oh. doing a, this heavy eye makeup thing when i was like with no concealer it was just 
Very you, need, you need that um, or, or primer, eyeshadow primer? primer. Okay. That's also what I think you use for that, which is sort of like helps block the oils of your skin from affecting the makeup. Oh, okay. It like acts as like a little shield. This is good to say I'm learning a lot yeah, today. I'm, I'm, I'm still learning these things, but these are the things I'm picking up. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for sharing them with me. I had a lovely time uh, with both of you. And thank you so much for coming over. And if you'd like to do it again sometime, I'd be more than happy. Okay, great. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you. 